Welcome to See What I Saw. This podcast was developed for and by Team One as a platform for dialogue, discussion, and developing a better understanding of one another. We hope from these recorded sessions that you will learn more deeply about your fellow team members, the road they have traveled, what challenges they faced on that road, and what challenges they may still face today. Our intention with this? To create a greater sense of empathy and allyship amongst our Team One family. And now, see what I saw. Hello, Team One. Paul Silverman here, and I will be your host today for our inaugural episode of See What I Saw, Team One's platform for authentic storytelling, empathy, and team belongingness. Now, in the words of esteemed Brene Brown, Brene said, In order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. So really, that's our goal here with See What I Saw. For those on our team who come from marginalized communities to have a forum to share their stories and their journeys. And in turn, for those of us who come from privilege to listen, to hear, to reflect, and in the end, to become better allies and advocates. Today's guest in our inaugural episode is the wonderful Stacy McKeever, our manager of digital asset management. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm a little nervous, but I think this will be fun. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start off with uh, something you know fairly easy, just getting to know you a little bit better. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, that would be great. I am originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I always liked that because I thought it was fun being from the original 13 colonies. I am a rabid Steelers fan, as well as Pirates fan and Penguins fan. So all Pittsburgh sporting teams all the time. I also like sports in general, so I have a good time with that. We moved to California in 77, and I really didn't want to move to California. I didn't want to leave my friends or anything like that. My mom had a hard time with it because I refused to go outside for a year. Fast forward to, I went to UC Santa Cruz. I'm a proud banana slug. And then I ended up in graduate school. I'm skipping ahead. I went to graduate school at UCLA, and I have a master's in library and information science. So when I talk about being the librarian, I'm serious. I have an actual master's degree in librarianship. And then I fell backward into technology, and by way of craziness, I fell backwards into working for ad agencies, and I am now at Team One and seven years, and I really enjoy it. I like coming here every day, but I also like what I do. That's fantastic. So yes, indeed, you are our resident librarian in managing all of our content. That's fantastic. Great. So let's get into the the meat of the topic here and and see what I saw, which is really, um, you know, first off, how, how do you identify yourself? I identify as a cisgender, heterosexual, right handed black woman. That's very specific. Well, Let's talk about the discussions we're going to be having um, in this series of podcasts. Definitely would love to hear about your journey and kind of the the beginning in child through adolescence into your adulthood. When was it the first time in your life when you maybe felt different? 
Well, the first time I was made to feel different or knew that I was going to be different, I was about five years old, and my parents let me know that there were going to be people who didn't like me because of the way I looked, specifically because I was a Black person. And, you know, five years old. And so it was like, well, why? Because. I mean, like, there was really no reason for it. And it's complicated because I grew up in an area where I went to a predominantly black school. And so we were in some ways in a bubble, but there would be times when going outside of that bubble or being in a school situation where I was one of three or one of four, maybe in the whole like school or grade level. And so I was made to know for sure that not only was I different, But somehow my difference, my skin color, I was less than. Yes, I've been called the N-word. And even though you're a little kid, you know instinctively that what you're being called is a bad thing. And getting older, it became necessary to be aware of my surroundings. And so anytime I go anywhere, even now... I always scan to see how many women, how many black people. I mean, like it's automatic and I become aware that I do it. And that surveillance, that that scanning that I do versus surveillance, the scanning that I do, then there are the calculations. So, for example, being in a meeting, how many men versus women am I going to be listened to? How is this going to go? You know, is there going to be jockeying for position? especially being a black person going into white spaces. Like when I first started at Team One, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure I was going to get the job. There's always sort of this underlying current that maybe they won't take me because I'm black. I mean, like I had the bona fides, so I knew I was solid in that way, but it's always around the edges. It's always sort of around the edges. But I connected, I did well, I knew what I was talking about, and I had the strength and the experience to carry it off. But yeah, there's always scanning that happens. And it it's kind of like background noise. You know, it's like you're walking through a store, you hear Muzak. It, it's that sort of thing. <clears throat> and do you find that even today, I mean, obviously it's a little bit different because we're out of sorts, so to speak, in the fact that this pandemic has made us work in a different way and make us, you know, work uh, through screens as opposed to in person. But before that, um, did you find challenges with regards to being Black in the workplace and respective to your identity? I found challenges in that, and this, this goes to something I was thinking about, It felt like a fear of having people bear witness, of acknowledging that there are differences. Because you bear witness and you say, yes, I see what is going on, I see that there is an issue, doesn't mean that you agree with it. It means that you see what is going on and you then can relate to it in some way, somehow. So, for example, when I hear sometimes coworkers, but when I hear coworkers say, you know, I just I don't want to deal with the unrest that was going on last year for sure. And that is not appropriate to talk about it or bring it into the office. Okay. 
I don't have the luxury of ignoring it because it directly affects me. At least having people go, you know what, I understand, or at least I acknowledge that, yes, there are challenges and there are differences and acknowledge that and, you know, have people go, I don't want to have to be bothered with it. Well, okay, but then that shows that you have the ability to ignore it because that is not your world and you won't be impacted by it. So would you say then that that is an example of privilege for those that haven't gone through the life experience that you have, that they can say, hey, you know, it doesn't affect me or it doesn't impact me and I don't believe it should be brought to the office. It is that, and I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully because it's not just, well, since I'm not impacted, it doesn't bother me, but it's also, I'm a good person. I couldn't possibly be be lumped in with privilege because I'm not rich, I'm not, and it's like privilege just means you get to do something that someone else can't. And everybody, everybody has a privilege of some sort. And I always try to keep it easy, like when I talk about left-handed versus right-handed people. Our society is set up for right-handed people. I'm a right-handed person. There are things I don't have to think about or worry about. It's that level of privilege. So it is about at least acknowledging it's like, yeah, there are some things that I get to do that other people don't do or can't do or prohibited from doing. And just acknowledging it, just the bare minimum of acknowledging it, of, like I said, bearing witness. Let's talk a little bit more about what has happened in this country and, frankly, globally in some countries over the past two years. Obviously, there was some explosive change that happened in social justice in this country. How do you feel towards that? Do you feel it's made a difference? Do you feel that it's made people more aware? In some ways, it's it, it, it has made a difference. But it also in other ways, I think that is also made good people really afraid. And I say that because there is a feeling of, I don't wanna touch this with a 10 foot pole because I don't wanna be tarnished by the potential of maybe looking like I'm a racist. And it's like, okay, but again, it's about being able to open up and being able to relate to that yeah, this the the way that our country is set up is pretty effed up. And how do I fit in that? And how can I help activate and change? It can be a little change. If you want to go out and like try and tear down things, okay, but even a small change. And that is where I go back to willing to bear witness, willing to like like the title of this podcast, see what I saw being willing to see things or at least try and see things from the perspective of someone else. So one of the things that I wanted to to ask being uh, uh, someone who comes from privilege, but also someone who, you know, was raised in a very progressive household. What has happened for me over the past year and a half is me really realizing that my whiteness, the color of my skin, Okay, 
that I have a responsibility to do something about my privilege and make my privilege work for those that didn't come from privilege. And so when you talk a little bit about the notion of, you know, how people can help um, and the first step on that journey is, you know, to listen um, and to hear. And then that second stage is, as Brene Brown talked about, understanding, you know, what people went through and then it eventually hopefully leads to some empathy. But the question I'm interested in is, and, and you and I have discussed this a little bit in the past, that there are a lot of us out there that aren't quite sure, like, what do we do? What's right? What's wrong? And to the point you said, hey, if I say something the wrong way, am I going to be considered a racist? Well, it's all about relationships. It's how comfortable you feel with the person you're talking to. But really, it's like, how do you relate? I was thinking about this because there are times when there is a feeling that there is an equity. Things are balanced and equal. And I'm going to use an example that always causes like it's like you throw bombs. The use of the N-word. I have been in numerous conversations where the narrative goes, well, Black people use it. Why can't I use it? Okay. Because, I mean, like, the, the short answer is because you can't. But the longer answer is think about the historical use of that word. So, essentially, what you're saying to me is you, the white person, want to use a word that historically your race, your the majority, however you want to identify it, use that word to denigrate and subjugate a group of people. And you want to be able to use that word. Like, as if there is no back history with it. Now, Black people use it all the time. And the the conceit is, or what has been described as, they have turned a negative into a positive. Okay. I mean, like, there are some black people who are like, nope, never, ever, nope, don't use it. There are some where it's like, no, it's okay as long as it's within family. I'm kind of like, do I really want to use it? No, but there are times, but that's just me. But in the example of that whole thing with the N-word, is there is a desire to suspend any type of context to what that word is. And so when you hear from your your colleagues, your friends, you know, maybe staff, whatever, uh, you know, black people who are saying, I am tired of telling you what to do or tired of telling you how you can help. Part of that is because we will say what we need and there is still this like, but really, do you need that? Is that really, are you sure that's what it is? Because this is what I think. Honestly, I don't care what you think. You've asked me what I've needed. And either you want to do it or you don't. If you don't want to do it, then don't, just then just say, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Instead of this whole dance of give me a list so I can do it and then look like I'm okay. I don't want, I don't want, I look like I'm okay. What I want is for you to actually bear witness, to actually say, yes, I see that. 
And that's kind of gross. And if you have to go off and like think about it for a little bit and then come back and we talk about it some more and you get more information, then you have to go back. And if if this ends up being a back and forth dialogue, I am very happy to do it. But I am not in a place mentally or physically to give you a laundry list so that you can feel absolved. Because black people are not allowed to be absolved. So given what you just said, Stacey, about, um, you know, you and, and I've heard it from other black friends, uh, associates that, look, you know, things exploded and there was a lot of discussion uh, about what is going on in America and white privilege. Finally, the word got spoken, white privilege. Well, what is that? And the black community told us what that was. They told us what white privilege was. And they said, if you want to learn more about it, go to these websites. And I know that our DE and I group out of Publicis has provided all kinds of resources. Um, look, there's something called Google that anybody can go to. Those are examples, I think, that you're talking about in terms of like, what is it that you can do? Well, here are the things you can do. Stop asking me. You figure it out yourself. Don't put this on me. But I'd love to understand um, from your point of view what you want to see from your Team One community that will demonstrate their true understanding of what you've been through, what people of color are feeling, and that they empathize with you, and that ultimately they are demonstrating their allyship. I think what I come back to is being willing to bear witness, being willing to acknowledge that there is a a structural chasm, that there are, you know, that it is a crappy systemic problem and they are willing to see it, acknowledge it, and understand that that just by acknowledging it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that they see it and are like, oh, yeah, gotcha. I see what you're talking about. And then go about trying to understand. Now, I'm not saying for them to go out and say, hey, can I sign up for a class? That's not what I'm talking about. But there are times when you can, for example, Paul, if you're in a meeting, just kind of look around and count in your head, how many men do you see? How many women do you see? How many people of color? How many of, of the majority do you see? And just reflect on and just sort of watch as a, as a study, as an anthropologist, like what's going on? Like, you know, I heard Stacy talk about feeling surveilled or being talked over. Do I see that in any way? And just reflect on that and take it and think about it. I mean, like, that's the key point. It's like, it's about putting yourself, as Brene says, putting yourself in that person's place. And, and li- even if it's for five minutes, if you can only stand for five minutes of that sort of reflection, okay, what does that open you up to? Be willing to open up into that and see where you go. Now, 
it's not going to be easy. And I keep saying this, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be soft either. This is hard. And for a lot of people, they are not used to this level of day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute, second-to-second grind. It is a grind. It is a huge grind. And, you know, and now with everybody yelling at each other in terms of on TV and all this stuff, it's just even worse. But it's just taking those moments to put yourself in, a, in someone's place, just kind of see what it is like, and then just think about it. You and I are working to forge a relationship so that you could say to me six months down the line, hey, can I have a chat with you? Sure. And then say, this is what I noticed. I was in this meeting and this is what I did. And what do you think? And we have a discussion. It is about connections, but it's also about what does that look like? And I do it all the time. I do it with my sister who I have more privilege than she does. But, you know, I think about her day. I think about my um, people that I know who are in the LBGTQ community. And I think about that. I think about, wow, that sucks. And, you know, sometimes I feel comfortable asking, sometimes I don't, but it, but that's what it is. That That's what it is. And what that is defined as is empathy. And so we've come full circle in mm-hmm. terms of when I ask, what is it that team one community can do? And ultimately it comes to, to empathy because when you walk in someone else's shoes, as the great quote goes, you then understand what that person's journey is. So, uh, Stacy, really uh, appreciate your time and your insights and your comments today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we sign off? What I would like to share is, I wasn't sure about doing this, but I'm very happy that I did because it opens up stuff for me as well. It's a mutual benefit. I think everyone will benefit from this. That's fantastic. Well, I feel privileged in, in a different way. I feel privileged to have been able to spend some time with you and to understand your history and your journey and to see what you saw. It's helped give me some additional perspective. With that, we will end our session today. This is Paul Silverman, proud representative of the Agents of Change of Team One, signing off.